Hello and a very warm welcome to Changing World New Opportunities. I'm Louise Farrand. And I'm Lorna Kennedy. In our second season of the podcast, we're interviewing senior investment figures from Master Trust Pension Schemes. We're asking them to reflect on the investment challenges facing them as DC leaders. What are they excited about and what's keeping them awake at night? If you'd like to find out as soon as a new episode comes out, you could subscribe to our email alert at www.dcin.co.uk and click hear more. Or you could follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at DCIF underscore UK. On with the show. Hi, Lorna. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You okay? Yes, I am very well. Thank you. Very well. On this week's episode, we are speaking to Jane Walker, who is a senior DC investment strategist at Mercer, and she plays a senior role within the Mercer Master Trust. How was our conversation with her, Lorna? It was good. I enjoyed it. I was just thinking she was another of our non-London-based boards that we've spoken to. So she was speaking to us from Bristol. Yes, I feel like there's a growing contingent of Southwest people chatting to Jane. I think before the podcast was recorded, she was saying more and more consultants are moving out there. Obviously, I'm here. Well, not Bristol, but... There are a growing amount of consultants in Bristol. And then there's also quite a lot of wealth managers as well, more intermediary type businesses there too. So a growing base. But I thought we had a really good chat with Jane and I thought her views on engagement were really interesting. So just kind of encouraging. She didn't really want members to worry. She wanted members to focus on being a member of the pension scheme, contributing as much as they could and let her worry about the investment piece. Yeah, I thought it was nice the way she linked that back to target date funds and said she worries about what goes under the bonnet and they can kind of focus on steering the car, I suppose, rather than worrying what's underneath the bonnet, which is a good analogy, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, they shouldn't have to worry about what the nature of volatility is or all these complicated things. They just need to worry about the journey, not what's going on underneath the bonnet. It was a really great conversation. Jane's got so much energy and passion for the world of DC. So yeah, it was really cool to talk to her. And yeah, on with the show. Actually, before we listened to it, my favourite was the her Ask of Asset Managers. So I'll just leave that teaser because she's got a very good ask of us. So you can listen till the end. Right. Without any further ado then, on with the show. Hi, Jane. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Lorna. How are you? Really well, thank you. I wonder if we could maybe start by you telling us a little bit about yourself. How did you get where you are? What's your career path been like up to now? This is always my favourite question to ask in interviews when grads come into Mercer and I ask them why they're desperate to join the pensions industry and they make up some great answer. Because I think it's fair to say, having had conversations with lots of pension professionals, I don't think any of us necessarily plan to end up here. It's just sort of by accident and I'm very much in line with that. So I studied economics and international development at University of Bath. So I was looking for something kind of financy but not too kind of mathsy. And I actually started working at Nationwide Building Society out of university as an economic and market analyst. And then about two years into that role, I moved to Mercer and I started as a graduate in our DB investment consulting team. And I was very, very focused on defined benefit investment consulting. That was the only focus of our team. 
and also studying for the CFA. Once I'd qualified as a CFA charter holder in 2015, I was kind of looking for a new and fresh challenge. I actually did a secondment into our DC delegated and private wealth business because I think, you know, we've been talking about the death of DB for quite some time now, but I was getting to that point where I was starting to take on some of my own clients and I was really questioning whether that was something I wanted to be doing. I really enjoyed my time in the DC and private wealth team. It was a very different lens to look at investments from. And I wanted to kind of continue that. And I, at the time, the opportunity didn't exist at Mercer. So I briefly left and went into the private wealth space at a Bristol-based firm for about six months. So I think people in the industry call it boomeranged. So I boomeranged back to Mercer within about six to seven months because a space opened up in our DC consulting team. And I was in that role for about two years and I moved into the team I'm in now. So our DC delegated team just before lockdown. So I moved in March 2020. Plans were to go to London and fully integrate within the team, get up to speed. And I had to pivot quite quickly to do all of that virtually. I already knew people tangentially because we work quite closely with our consulting team within the the delegated space. But I had to e-meet lots of people and kind of build my network out in that team all virtually. So I now head up that team, so head up the DC investment solutions team. And I manage a team of four investment specialists whose focus is solely on that kind of DC delegated piece. And that includes the Mercer Master Trust. So probably the area that most people will be familiar with us kind of externally. It's very tricky joining somewhere in COVID, isn't it? But at least you knew the company, is it? if not the specific team. I think the network and the people to ask and the people to bug starting a new job is by far the hardest. And I at least knew those people reasonably well to not feel too embarrassed about having to constantly bug them to figure out what was going on. How much are you in the office now and how much do you work from home? So I'm Bristol based and I split my time I do spend quite a bit of time in London. I think most people will be familiar with the majority of clients meet largely in London just because it's the easiest for everyone to get to. So I try to do two days a week, at least in an office that might be London or Bristol. But yeah, three days at home probably is about right on average. I think trying to get in a bit more, there's a bit more of a push to try and get people back to the office now. So hopefully we'll see that increase over the next couple of months. Do you live in the middle of Bristol? Do you live outside Bristol? So I live, it's between the middle and the outside. So I live, it is Bristol City. I live by the Bristol City football ground, Ashton Gate. It's the only place that is completely flat to walk to from our office, which is not completely the reason I chose to live there, but I don't (laughs) love walking up hills and everywhere else in Bristol is very hilly. Fair. Where I live in Devon, I'm sort of halfway up a hill. So whichever way I go, at some point I'm going to have to go up a hill. Exactly. I lived up in Clifton for the first couple of years when I lived in Bristol and the hill was... killing me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jane, I'm going to do a little heli segue. It was a bit of an uphill battle in 2022, wasn't it? Yes. (laughs) That was a great segue. I mean, it just came to me. What can I say? (laughs) Not going to go on about it, but it was a good one. (laughs) So 2022, I mean, what a year. We've been asking everyone on the podcast to reflect a bit on 2022. Do you feel like it was a blip or are you taking away some like longer term things that you're doing differently as a result of what happened? I think if you'd asked me this question, because I think we've had two blips for want of better words recently. So 2020 with COVID and the impact on markets from that and just the impact on members as well. And then the 2022 
blip, let's say, I think there were multiple blips really in 2022, particularly for UK investors. And I think about it in the context of my my overall career in investments. And we had a pretty easy ride of it up until 2020. And I think about the grads now who have joined my team and what's characterizing their career is completely different to how mine started. I think that from an investment standpoint, you always have to think about the potential for blips. The last three years have kind of been a reminder that it is an unpredictable place. None of us would have foreseen COVID. Obviously, Russia, Ukraine, and the way that all panned out, I think we were all very, very hopeful that that wouldn't be the case, that what ultimately ended up happening. And I think that it's something that we've always preached at Mercer about being ready for an uncertain world and you're never really sure what's going to happen. And I know when I joined Mercer in 2013, we were talking about the fact that yields would be rising imminently. And now we've obviously seen that, but it's 10 years later. So I think it's always important to be prepared for that uncertainty. It means that you will always look back with the benefit of hindsight and realize there were things that you could have done better, but equally I think it protects you from those worst, worst case scenarios. A great example is what we saw in the bond market. There was an element of that that was predictable and there was an element of that that was not predictable, I think. We knew that yields were rising because we knew inflation was coming. That was something that we were prepared for. We're very mindful of interest rate sensitivity when we're building our portfolios because we know it's an area of potential risk. But we... I can't sit here and say that we predicted what would happen post the Liz Truss kind of mini budget announcement. And that element was completely unforeseen. And therefore, the extent of what we saw was unpredicted. But because we managed that interest rate risk as an exposure, we were protected from some of that just because it coincided with the interest rate rises that we were seeing anyways as a result of inflation. And we do manage interest rate sensitivity as a risk exposure. And we were also underweight that in our portfolios that we were in less interest rate sensitive assets. So there's an element of luck and there's an element of skill and there's an element of not trying to time these things and always being prepared for the fact that if you were fully invested in those markets, you would have seen 20 to 40% falls in your portfolio values. And that could happen in any particular asset really at any time. And so we always have kind of dealt with that from a portfolio construction perspective and thinking about those risks as broadly as possible as well. Definitely a good lesson in the value and importance of diversification. Yes. But it's interesting. I feel like in my life, probably all of our lives, we've had so many things described as like a once in a generation, once in a century blip. And I just feel like we've had quite a lot of those, haven't we, over the course of our careers. It's sort of fascinating, really. It did seem a little bit more... Until 2020, it did seem a little bit more calm. And certainly the last three years, I think everyone got sick of unprecedented. I don't know whether the Soros is kind of, we've come up with loads of other words to describe unprecedented when we all got sick of saying that word. I do think that the move in interest rates and where we are now has created a different investment kind of regime for want of better words. I do think that that means a real change in how we are viewing equity markets and bond markets and the relative attractiveness of those two markets because we've moved from a place where it's really unattractive to put your money, you know, even if you think about it as an individual basis. Before, I was really keen to do stocks and shares investing because I wasn't making anything on my ISA or my savings account. Now, actually, the relative, you're thinking, oh, well, actually, I'll just keep it in a much lower risk savings account. So I think 
that for me does have a material change and we see in our daily lives in terms of mortgages and everything else there is definitely a shift in investment markets on a more longer term fundamental basis but i think yeah the blips and the constant unprecedented events that have been happening should certainly be something that we are mindful of in investment design and more broadly i guess as well i guess the blip could have been the longer term one where interest rates were so low yeah, exactly. And it was just a really long-term blip of 10 years where we were dealing with ultra, ultra low interest rates, which for some of us feels like the norm because it is the defining feature of our working lives. But then for many, this will become their norm. And it kind of comes to diversity. It's useful to have people with all these different experiences to build the picture because everyone has a different view of what normal might look like. And it doesn't seem to me like it's changed your process because you've always thought about that way in the past. How has it impacted your asset allocation? And has it impacted how you communicate with members? From an asset allocation perspective, we haven't made any kind of changes looking retrospectively, I guess. What we had done, you know, when we saw inflation coming, we added things like global inflation-linked bonds because we knew we wanted to have diversity outside of just being in UK inflation-linked bonds, which obviously would have served us well given what ended up happening. Gold, we introduced gold into the portfolio because of the way that that can perform in an environment where obviously inflation is high and growth is low, which is ultimately what we've kind of seen. Obviously, we haven't put the whole portfolio in gold. It's a 2% allocation. So it's not going to change fundamentally the overall performance level, but it's something of a ballast or a protector. So we haven't made kind of retrospective changes to our investment design and beliefs because of what we've seen, because it has always been about what could we see over the longer term. So it's more of a, I don't know, it reinforced our conviction in that view. I guess. And the fact that hindsight, we could have invested everything in Apple, but equally we see risks in that. And we know that market timing is a very difficult game to play and not one that we're willing to play. And from a member communication standpoint, I think we've seen more engagement from members. And it's kind of something that is keeping me awake at night is as we see more members get in touch with us, a lot of those being closer to retirement, there is definitely a lack of understanding of what it means to be in control of your pension savings. And the fact that in the short term, markets will be volatile. And that is just a feature of them. But it's essential for us to do that because of inflation and the other things that we're trying to protect them against. But there is a lack of understanding in the membership. And I think this is a broad industry problem of the biggest thing you can do is contribute more. That's the biggest thing that will have an impact on ultimately what you see in your pension pot at retirement, as painful as that may seem at any point in your career. And the key thing for us is really about engaging with members on when they're expecting to retire and how they want to take those benefits. So the biggest dislocation that we've seen recently is those members who were in annuity targeting strategies who didn't want to buy an annuity. Those people would have seen 25, 40% declines in their pension pot. They can still buy the same value of annuity income because those funds ultimately did what they were supposed to do. But if that's not what they wanted to do, that's a really difficult message. And we have seen some of that come through. And I think that's the focus for us is make sure you're in the right glide path and make sure you're in the right point of the glide path. And that's what our focus has been very much on. You know, We're not thinking we're going to be able to 
I don't want to be putting members in a position where they could ultimately replace me in my role. It's about having realistic expectations of how far we can bring them on the journey of understanding pension investments and what they need to know. And for me and for our trustees, the retirement age and the ultimate pathway that they're on is the key thing that we're trying to focus in on when we're talking to members. That's really helpful and kind of brings us to one of those questions that keeps coming up really is about member engagement and how much that we should see engaging with investment as a goal. I think that's such a fundamental question. We just did some research that came out about a week ago with Ignition House that showed that basically members' understanding of responsible investment as a term has like flatlined at about 18% since 2018. And yeah, it sort of makes you think, should engagement be the the end goal? I don't know. What do you think? I think it's about what you want to achieve with that engagement. So I fundamentally don't believe that what we should be trying to do is to educate people to make their own investment decisions, because I think that that's a kind of lifelong ambition. This isn't their day job. This is not something that they should need to know, that we have to be realistic in our expectations. And I think it is, and we see people might read a newspaper and say, oh, Japanese equity is the next big thing. And I'm just going to put all of my pension savings into Japanese equity. And then they forget about it for 12 years. And it might have been a great place to be for a couple of years and then a horrible place to be for 10. And so that's always my fear is that we all have these brief like flurries of like, I'm going to get on top of my pensions. I'm going to figure out what the best thing to invest in is. I'm going to move my investments and that's what we're going to be investing in. And that's how it's going to go. And then you kind of forget that you wanted to get on top of your pensions investments and you forget that that's something that you should be mindful of. And ultimately you end up in the wrong place at the point of when it matters most. Again, our goal is to give people information about what's available to them if they feel that they have the skill set to make the decision themselves or if they have a financial advisor who wants to have more flexibility. So give people information about what is already available to them. And then for those vast majority of people who don't want to make the time and don't have the knowledge to make sure that they're really just focused on what we are doing on behalf of them. The fact that they may see short-term volatility, but that's just part of the natural, like, part of investing, but that there are key things that they can do to improve their ultimate outcome. And I think that's the key for me is the vast majority of our investment education is focused on informing them what we're doing on their behalf. And I guess what you need from the members is you need them to engage with when they're going to retire. So tell me when you're going to retire. And then that allows you to design an investment strategy that's fit for purpose is this uncertainty in the retirement date must make life tricky for you. Very much so. And also one of the bigger challenges of the industry is also post-retirement. And it's not just you're going to retire at this date, but when do you actually want to take your money? And how much money do you want to take at the beginning? And does that change at the end? And how do we create something? Don't have any answers at this stage, but how do you make something that's efficient as possible from an investment standpoint? which meets the needs of those individuals in a really simple way that's simple to understand. And I think it's much easier in a pre-retirement space, not saying it's easy, but it's easier than the post-retirement space to kind of be like, look, this is how we're investing and the decisions you can do to change those outcomes. And I think that is very much the focus is we can design the perfect investment strategy, but if no one knows about it and no one understands what they need to do to make that work, how it's designed to do, then it's pointless. So Jane, let's ask you a question about, we've sort of talked about the high level. Let's talk about the engine for a minute. Lifestyling or target date funds, where do you sit on that? Which side of the fence are you on? 
we really take a target-dated fund approach. You can ultimately see some benefits of either approach. But from our standpoint, target date funds allow us more flexibility from an investment standpoint, crucially without having that kind of member trigger. If you want to change your lifestyle, members will see it. It will be a change to their investment strategy. You will be trading in and out of things that will be very visible to them. And sometimes the kind of devil is in the detail and actually it distracts people from the key things that they should be thinking about. So being able to make these changes under the bonnet gives more flexibility from an investment design perspective. And without having this kind of like members being like, why is this suddenly, why is the allocation to this changed? And what is this fund? And, you know, why have I suddenly started seeing like this reduced and stuff and trying to explain that. And it does obviously provide some efficiency. You know, we can make trades when on a rebalancing basis under the bonnet at a fund level rather than an individual member level. So it does allow for efficiencies from a trading perspective, I guess. But I think importantly, that member simplicity piece is a key reason we take that approach of, you know, you're in a fund, the name tells you a year, it tells you a destination. Those are the key things we want you to focus on. So those are the key things that we're bringing out to you kind of in our fund naming convention and and everything else is kind of done under the bonnet. I wonder if we could turn our thoughts to the mansion house reforms. So there's you know, been tons going on in pensions recently. And mansion house reforms, mansion house compact was one of them back in the summertime, putting private markets firmly in the spotlight and encouraging DC schemes, large DC schemes to put more money into private equities. What's your take on the reforms and how are you implementing it, if at all? So the Mercer Master Trust is a signatory to the Mansion House reforms. There's two key drivers to that. Firstly, is that Mercer as a house has a huge capability in the alternative space. It's something we've been doing for DB and other institutional investors for years. I think kind of our earliest track record of researching private markets is in like the late 1990s in Australia. So we have a huge amount of experience. We've got 200, I think, individuals in our alternative team across the globe, and we run private markets mandates. So it's something we've got a lot of capability in. And the second reason is because the reason we have that alternative capability is because we think that it can be beneficial to investors. So DC members no different. DC members have long time horizons. So they're the perfect private markets investor on the face of it. Obviously, the DC space has huge kind of operational systemic issues with accessing private markets. And I think the Mention House reforms are an important part of how we get to where we want to or need to get to from a private markets perspective, because it needs systemic change to get us to a place where we are, trustees are comfortable with the concept of private markets investing from a DC perspective. Um, There are areas that we cannot implement perfectly. So things like performance fees, there will be a pragmatic solution to applying performance fees, which won't be the perfect solution because we have members coming in and out of funds. And so there is no absolutely perfect way to apply that. But there's a pragmatic solution where you know it's still beneficial to members at, at the end of the day. I think that means that we have to have a much more kind of almost collegiate response as an industry to familiarizing ourselves with private markets. The one thing I would say on Mention House Reforms is obviously there are two different sides to that story. There is a government agenda side and there is a pension provider side. And there has been, I think, quite a lot of concern 
from some that the government is essentially kind of forcing pension providers to funnel money into UK industries. And I think it is important to make the distinction of that is not what has been signed up to by the pension providers. We haven't signed up to shoving loads of money into the UK life sciences sector. And going back to the start of the conversation, we talked about diversification and private markets is no different to that. And we would not look to invest in a single geography or sector in the approach to private markets. And it has to also be in the best interest of members. So if we get to the end of solving for the operational considerations and figuring out what we can do at what cost and what price, if that ultimately we don't believe that that's in the best interest of members, the flexibility is certainly within that mandate that we don't need to implement that. So it's not a, you know, do this or else. And we haven't gotten to the full, there are operational ways that we can implement. So some platforms still can't deal with LTAFs. LTAFs are the vehicle of choice from the regulator. And we've seen loads more investment managers come out with LTAF products. Some platforms can't put those on platform at the moment. So it's conversations with platforms about how realistic is it to change that? And also, are there ways around that that we can provide access to private markets without having to change the kind of operational flexibility of those platforms? So that's what we're working through at the moment. And our alternative team are having conversations with managers who are already in the space or interested in moving into the space about what they would be able to offer or be interested in offering in a master trust space. Well, that sounds really, really interesting. And I think it's really reassuring to hear you make that point that it's not just a vehicle for funneling money into UK PLC and or not PLC. So that's really nice to hear. And I think it'll be really interesting kind of watching that interplay play out over the years. But, you know, hopefully it's a win-win for everyone, right? I think it definitely can be. Like done right, I think that there's a huge opportunity set out there in the private market space that currently DC members can't access. And we'd like to change that. Well, that's exciting. And hopefully more platforms will hear the message and get on board with LTAFs. Come on, platforms. (laughs) Okay, so then moving on to our next big bit of the conversation on net zero. You said already that you didn't really expect to be working out wacky and (laughs) talking about biodiversity when you started your career. But what would a typical day look like then? I'm interested to hear the other podcasts that you run, but I would say that I don't have a typical day, which is one of the things that I love about my role. Mixed in with some of the more mundane things that I do just from a, you know, kind of upkeep perspective and governance, I get to do loads of different exciting things. So podcasts, which is a bit of a new one for me, but we've done quite a lot of interviews with private markets publications recently on that Mansion House Compact. So that's been quite an interesting thing we've been doing over the last kind of couple of months or so, running specialist member webinars. So some of our bigger clients, we do webinars specifically on things like responsible investment or just the investment arrangements more generally. So I get out to speak to members, which is, I think it's always useful to keep that kind of lens because it really shows you what they're interested in knowing. So I actually really enjoy doing kind of member webinar side of things, talking to the regulator. So I had some conversations recently about productive finance and what kind of guidance that could be offered in relation to that. New business activity. So Master Trust is the vehicle of consolidation and a huge feature of the DC market. So there's a lot of new business activity and going out to speak to prospective clients. 
onboarding, so bringing new clients into the master trust, making sure that they get set up in the way that they want to from an investment standpoint. And, you know, as a master trust, we have to meet certain audit requirements. So making sure that all of that is kind of signed off in line with expectations obviously supporting existing clients. And that's been a key one over the last you know year, particularly with the volatility of markets, making sure that clients have the tools that they need to talk to their employees and our members about pensions and what that looks like for them. And obviously working with the master trust trustees. So I work really closely with the advisor to the trustees and meet with the trustees on a quarterly, if not more basis on education sessions on TNFD, private markets and the journey that we've been on, bringing them along with kind of what that looks like from an investment strategy perspective and all the regulatory kind of stuff mixed in between as well, your SIPs and your TCFD statements and everything else. Jane, I don't think there are enough hours in the day for you to do all that stuff. No, I'm lucky that I've got a team of people as well to help support because it's definitely moving from this has a more of a product focus than a consulting focus in the past. And I think looking from the outside in, you think, oh, well, all she does is run a product, whereas I've got to deal with all these different clients and I have to talk to them about all their very different issues. I think that my role is just multifaceted in a completely different way because there's just so many different elements to think about what is involved in investments from a master trust perspective. Oh, it must be fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely one of my more rewarding roles, I think. Oh, that's great. I mean, between all that busyness, I expect you probably sleep fairly well, but what, if anything, keeps you awake at night? I think it comes back to how can we help members understand more? It has to come back to that because I think I work for a huge investment consulting firm with great people. So from an investment strategy and design perspective, there's a huge amount of support and resource that sits within Mercer that I tap into. And that's huge from an investment standpoint. But we can build the perfect investment strategy. And if members are not understanding it, making bad decisions because they don't understand it, it's kind of pointless. And I worked in DB. I now work in DC. I am very aware of the fact that this generation has a whole new host of challenges that they have to face. And they don't necessarily have the toolkit to deal with that in the most efficient and effective way. And it's just, what can we do to close that gap, to make that better, to help improve their kind of experience and outcome at the end of this and really get the benefit of what a DC pension could be. So I think that's the key thing for me. is, And it's the hardest thing, right? Reaching out to that number of people with that differing level of expertise and experience and interest. It's never going to be solved probably, but how do we chip away at it in the meantime? Yeah. And one last question from me. Um, DCIF has obviously got a very engaged group of asset managers who get together to talk about all things DC investment. But if you had one ask of asset managers, what would it be? I think from an asset manager perspective, it's been great to see quite a few new, call them entrants into the DC space. Certainly the level of interest in the DC space has increased in recent years, partly driven by, we've seen that with the private market stuff. It's an area of growth and focus for investment managers. And I think that my key ask would be amounts that we're talking about and interactions with trustees, I think may lead people to believe that the DC market is less challenging in some ways. And I would say that having someone within your organization who fully understands the complexities of the DC market is crucial because it is a completely 
different set of challenges to those that they'll be more familiar with when they're talking to institutional clients. So consolidation to master trust, for example, and the fact that actually the opportunity set of clients that you're looking at is going to change dramatically over the next five to 10 years. And master trust approach to investments is going to be completely different to own trust DC clients and to the DB clients you're used to is going to be fundamental to understand. And, you know, we've got cost constraints within the master trust space. We have seen DC asset managers, you know, they understand now it's free cash flow coming into your portfolio. Once you win that mandate, it is a free cash flow coming in regularly, which is not something that you experience in the DB space. You know, you might get some cash flow coming in in chunks when companies make contributions. And obviously, with yields where they've been quite a lot of managers will have seen quite sizable outflows as a result of that as well. And that's not what defines the DC space. But also how those master trusts will look to work with investment managers in the future will be a key thing to understand before you go too far down designing any type of a product and you know having a feeling that you think where that might sit in portfolios and how clients might use it and how actually that will happen. And I think that's key is making sure you've got people who understand the complexities of the DC market internally so that that can help you in, we've had conversations with asset managers where you're like, great, that sounds fantastic from an investment perspective. How do you expect to implement that in a DC space when you've got to deal with platforms? How's that actually going to come to life for an individual? And I think that's the bit where there's still elements of dislocation from an asset manager perspective. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, that's lots to reflect on, Jane. Thank you so, so much. It's been so good to talk to you. I feel like we've covered so much ground. And I feel like I've got loads of new research ideas as well to take forward for DCI. Oh, so that's really helpful. It's good to hear you echo what we think about TNFD, you know, new space, everyone's in learning mode. I think it's definitely one that we're going to try and help with in the future. But anyway, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to chat. Thank you very much for the invitation to come on. Thank you for listening to Changing Worlds New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. See you next time.